Hey everyone, Dan here. Uh, Matt and I took the last week off for recording, but because we wanted to give you a New Year's present, got to keep the economy going, uh, we are bringing you another Beyond the Paywall episode of Our Son Pete. Uh, now, if you are not familiar, Our Son Pete is a monthly uh, Patreon-exclusive bonus podcast that I do, uh, where uh, I and a guest look at uh, the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. Currently, we are uh, in the uh, Warren Ellis run of Excalibur, and the episode you're going to hear today is uh, me and guest Dr. Anna Papard talking about Excalibur number 96, which is the beginning of the London Hellfire Club storyline. Uh, Anna, if you don't know, is the co-host of the Excalibur podcast, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow. Uh, it is a great show. You should listen to that. Uh, you should also listen to this, and uh, hopefully it will inspire you to support the WMQ&A Patreon, uh, which at the $3 tier gives you access to our son Pete every month. Uh, now, I'm actually gonna be restructuring the Patreon tiers for the new year. So we recently got in a bunch of Pete Wisdom uh, vinyl stickers created by uh, our friend Kevin Newburn. And uh, there's gonna be two different Patreon tiers for those. So the uh, $2 Patreon tier, which previously was uh, getting a uh, weekly uh, Comics XF staff pick, that's going to go away. That's going to be replaced by, you get a sticker. I will send you a sticker at the $2 a month tier. Uh, at the $4 a month tier, which is a new tier, you'll get access to our son Pete, but you will also get one of the stickers. So uh, bonus stuff, added value, content, uh, comedy, food for thought, a bunch of stuff you can get when you support the WMQ&A Patreon at patreon.com slash WMQcomics. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year. Spooches. Hello and welcome to Our Son Pete, a monthly Patreon-exclusive WMQ&A bonus podcast where I, Dan Grote, read through every appearance of British mutant spymaster Peter Winston Wisdom. This month we'll be covering Excalibur Volume 1, number 96, aka the one with the London Hellfire Club, and I'm joined by yet another friend to help me make it make sense. Uh, you may know her as the co-host of Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow, a podcast dedicated to covering Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur for 126 plus episodes. She's Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, Dr. Anna Papard. Welcome, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thrilled to be here. Thrilled to be reading this era of Excalibur as opposed to the era we've been trapped in on the Gosh Golly Wow podcast recently. We're between eras right now in that messy middle between the end of Davis and the beginning of Ellis. So this issue was a treat. I am not going to lie. Enjoyed this one. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're coming into the peak phalanx period, aren't you? Yep. Yep, I am right now trying to find scholars of cyberpunk to make some of those episodes interesting, and I'm struggling because it's a busy time of year for everybody, but we will make something out of it. <laughs> well, I look forward to listening. Uh, before we dig into this issue, a bit of business, a couple of bits of business, actually. So uh, first, listeners, uh, make sure you check out uh, the episode of WMQ&A that is airing November 22nd, which will either be the past or the future, depending on when this drops. Uh, we just recorded with Paul Cornell, and he was kind enough to spend the last 15 minutes or so of the show talking about Captain Britain and MI-13. So uh, it is the closest I've ever come to fanboy behavior in an episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> strap that one into your ear voids uh and then the second thing this show is going to have some merch uh, as we speak i am waiting on the arrival of pete wisdom stickers from artist kevin newburn uh, i haven't set everything up yet uh, about how they're going to be uh, distributed but there will be a patreon tier for them so more details on that to come they look great <laughs> but uh anna let's get to you what is your history with pete wisdom because you are getting dangerously close to covering his first appearance <laughs> yes we are um <laughs> i don't know what my history with pete wisdom is <laughs> when i was reading through excalibur for the first time i mean I was kind of like, I went into a lot of comics blind. I didn't really have like a fan community and stuff when I was first reading these issues. I was really just reading them, didn't know what to make of them. Pete Wisdom arrives. It seemed pretty clear to me that he was some type of author surrogate, that he was someone that the writer really wanted to be there because he seemed out of step with the book and it was unclear why he's here or what function he serves beyond the fact that the person who's writing him seems to really enjoy him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was my general impression i don't think i was super far off base in retrospect <laughs> but i mean you know he gets a lot of crap for like the kitty pride romance you know that's not his fault i mean it's not pete wisdom's fault you know he's a character <laughs> that's doing his best we can't blame characters for the flaws of writers and all of those things i mean i'm somebody that i think every character is a good character if they're written correctly, if they're written interestingly, and I support people's loves of every type of character. So I support your entire project here. Would I say that Pete is a favorite of mine in particular? Not necessarily, mm -hmm. but again, I support your love of him and I'm, I'm happy to talk about him. I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I, I think even reading these comics when I was a teenager, I, you know, Pete Wisdom was the Poochie of Excalibur. That's that's, you know, it's just <laughs> yeah, a fact. Yeah. But, you know, even at the time, it, it felt like a self insert for for Warren Ellis to the, you know, for whatever value that I could express that at, at like 15 or 16 when these comics were first coming out. Well, it has that feel, too, of, you know, a television show that's been on for a long time and they add a new character in like one of the last seasons. And then the writers are really excited to work with that character because it's like new blood, a fresh face. I'm bored of all these characters. Let's tell stories about the new character. See, it reminds me of like Esri Dax in Deep Space Nine. They bring her in. It feels like we're just inundated with Esri Dax episodes because the writers are so excited for a new character <laughs> that sometimes makes people not like a character. That's a difficult balance to strike, but I understand that phenomenon. There's excitement about a new character. Absolutely. Uh, so to uh, catch folks up, previously in Excalibur 95, Nate Gray came to Muir Isle and threw a temper tantrum. It wasn't that good. Uh, <laughs> that was last episode. Zach Jenkins was here. We had fun. Uh, but with that out of the way, let's talk about Excalibur 96, Fireback, cover date April 1996, written by Warren Ellis, drawn by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Bob Vicek, colored by Ariane Lunchwick, with separations by Malibu's Hughes, lettered by Richard Starkins and Comicraft, and edited by Suzanne Gaffney, with a cover by Pacheco and Vicek. And uh, what a week to stare at some Pacheco art. Uh, so last week, as we're recording this, uh, Pacheco died at 60 after battling ALS. Uh, he, Pacheco, for me, was the first artist that I remember sort of getting 
promoted quote unquote because of how good he was you know he did he started with the bishop mini series in 94 95 then he does the star jammers mini series with ellis then he's on excalibur through issue 103 and next thing you know he's on x-men you know i feel like the only the only other comparison point in that period for x-men books was joe matarera who almost showed up kind of fully formed on uncandy save for that one deadpool's mini series and actually i think a couple of issues of Excalibur if I'm remembering correctly he did he did Excalibur 57 and 58 I believe yeah but you know it, it was it was good to see at the time because Pacheco was very good um you know before we get too deep into the issue Anna do you have did you have any Pacheco thoughts that you wanted to share yeah I mean as I said we've kind of been stuck in this weird era of Excalibur We've had mostly Ken Lashley on art lately, and we've mm-hmm. been saying a lot of nice things about his style. He's a very talented artist, but definitely in 1994, which is where we're at in the Gosh Golly Wow podcast, very 90s. Yeah. Like Lashley is not my particular favorite artist. Again, you know, styles are subjective and all of those things. So when I picked up this particular issue and like looking at Pacheco's art and just thinking about what I enjoyed about this when I read through these the first time and what a breath of fresh air it felt like, like I didn't read this as it was coming out. I would have been reading this in like for the first time or probably like 2010 or something. So not when it was coming out at all, but Mm -hmm. still I was reading through these things and like going through all these different eras of art and stories and like, yeah, getting to, to him on art, it just, it's so clean and it's so fluid. It's such a joy to read compared to the way that, that kind of, mm, ultra extreme 90s art will like pack the page with no pacing and give you like no space to breathe and we've been having a lot of trouble in some of the issues that we've been covering on gosh golly wow lately because we'll have these sort of quiet emotional issues and we had Richard Ashford on writing very much trying to do a Chris Claremont impression and yet with the extreme art they'll be like a scene of Kitty Pride cuddling a Bamp doll like thinking about Ileana Rasputin and it's like Lashley is like struggling to like make something soft and cute because it's like they're all trying to ape that image style and again I think Lashley develops more of his own style a little bit later but that was very early in his career and yeah just coming to this and like it's seeming so clean and so you know well planned in terms of the layouts and we have white space I have missed white space it just seems so polished and I mean this is like relatively early in his career too and yet he's just like got the whole package here and he's really got a good like feel for this team and this context like his action is great but he's also really good at the domestic scenes you know like the characters look distinct I can tell who is who I really appreciate that and you know the skill of facial expressions and um Casual clothing as well. We have casual clothing here, making its return to Excalibur. Also something we haven't had a lot of lately in the issues we've been reading and something that was so wonderful during the Davis era because Excalibur is a very kind of domestic book. And, you know, having him capture that with, you know, his very, I mean, I really appreciate like the periodness of the styles here too. I mean, like Kurt's ridiculous outfit with the torn like shorts. I'm like, it's ridiculous. But I'm like, this is of the moment. I'm here mm-hmm. for it. He draws it well. And yeah, honestly, just a breath of fresh air. And yeah, really made me feel nostalgic for this era and his art style in general. And yeah, just really sad to hear that news this week. Absolutely. And and yeah, you know, when you're gonna have a book where people 
will occasionally sit around and make fun of Moira's coffee. Yeah. You have to have them in casual clothing <laughs> to do that. You really do. <laughs> it's the and best part of waking up. Everybody just feels so, everybody feels so pretty and emo. He gives everybody like lovely hair and just like lovely poses. And yeah, I just kept thinking about how pretty everybody looked. I mean, he's got, he's got like Peter Rasputin here in like the baggy <laughs> striped like turtleneck slouching around with his like emo flock of hair like over his forehead i'm like this is the most i've ever liked peter rasputin <laughs> it, it definitely taps into the sensitive artist side of him but i also have to wonder how big that that sweater is that it can flop just so on his uh frame <laughs> i know i know questions questions um so kind of quick summary of the issue before we you know, dive into observations. Uh, well, the problem is actually there's too much shit happening in this issue for a brief summary. So suffice it to say, the London Hellfire Club is up to something. Black Air is up to something. Mount Joy is up to something. Sebastian Shaw is up to something. <laughs> and Pete Wisdom is up to not much, actually. Uh, and Kurt and Megan get new looks because new artists wills it so. Yeah, I I mean that that's sort of my opening thought for this issue. There there's too many there are too many characters, there are too many things going on and Ellis can't keep track of them all. Uh so much so that the character to whom this podcast is dedicated, his very self insert, uh gets a measly half a page uh which is basically com- com- well, which which is it's comic relief is all it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I haven't reread all the issues around this issue. I mean, I've read them in the past, but I haven't mm-hmm. read them in a while. And trying to sort of be like reading this issue and like, did I miss something? Which characters are we dealing with here? Is that Margali? Because she seems kind of off model. And I was like, no, I looked it up on the wiki. That is Margali because I know she's going to be the Red Queen. And <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of info dumping here. It's a lot of setup. It's a lot of context. There are quite a few editor's notes to like, oh, get this piece of information over here, which, you know, typical of the X-Men comics of the 90s. But yeah, it definitely feels like an issue that's setting up a bunch of upcoming storylines and setting up new status quos. I mean, even like the scene with Doug Locke where he basically states his deal, <laughs> like what he's going to be doing moving forward. I was like, okay, well, I appreciate being situated a little bit clunky though, a little bit clunky. Well, that's, that's a very, you know, Jim Shooter, every comic is someone's first thing, mm-hmm. but it's also like the penultimate page of the issue or or so that suddenly he just kind of pops up and states his deal. Usually you get that in the first page or two, but uh <laughs> Doug Locke, he's important. Uh actually he is to this story, but not much not not until later. But mm-hmm. uh the opening splash page is Mount Joy, uh a close-up shot of Mount Joy's face, declaring it a tasty world and then not showing up again for a bit. Uh so Mountroy is a Pacheco OC. He first appeared in the Bishop miniseries that he did with writer John Ostrander in 94. He comes from Bishop's future in Earth 1191, and his powers allow him to possess people's bodies while absorbing their life force or something like that. Uh, Anyway, he's here now, and he has secretly possessed a member of the London Hellfire Club. We don't know which one yet, but uh, this is, I mean, honestly, I, and I think a big part of this issue is, is you know, this is Pacheco's second issue uh, on Excalibur, not counting the couple of pages he did in issue 90. And this is the, I think this is a lot of him sort of 
there are a few moments in this issue of him asserting himself. One is bringing Mountjoy into the mix. Uh, another we'll get to uh, very soon. But uh, after Mountjoy, we pay a visit across the pond to the Xavier Institute because Excalibur is an X-Men book uh, where we find <laughs> Jean Grey picking up the mail uh, in a thigh length robe, in a thigh length robe, as one does. When uh, Excalibur's old cross-time caper era buddy, Alistair Stewart, shows up asking her to help him get in touch with Excalibur because they're all in grave danger, which is the best kind of danger, as we all know. Uh, now, Anna, ref- maybe you can refresh my memory as the the classic Excalibur expert. When was the last time we saw Alistair prior to this? Do you remember? I don't think we've seen him since Excalibur 65. Okay. I don't think so. Like, because I think we left him at cloud nine with the warpies and he was supposed to be helping do something vague with them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I don't think we've seen him since then. Listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the first time he showed up since then. Our, our memories are made for more important things. Let's be honest, but I, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not the keeper of Alistair Stewart's continuity. Yes, so exactly. I probably podcasted about Alistair Stewart more than most people. So <laughs> I guess maybe if anyone's going to claim that title, it can be me, but God, I'm so happy to see him again for Alistair. And he draws him real nice. He like remembers that he had that sort of, <laughs> again, once again, email undercut, like under mm-hmm. Davis and he replicates that here. I appreciate that caring about Alistair's haircut and making him look very Alistair even though he's got a very different style I was very happy to see old Alistair again because when Excalibur sort of became the post-Davis era we had this whole jettisoning jettisoning Mm -hmm. rather of like all of the Davis characters of Cerise and Kylan and Farron all the characters that he brought in and we also had like a jettisoning of the kind of whole context of that world so that's partly why we haven't seen Alistair and we haven't seen, you know, <laughs> like Alistair was like part of who, which was like this Doctor Who thing and like all part of like the Britishy pop cultureness that Claremont and Davis had brought to the book. So yeah, just seeing him again reminds me of that context and makes Excalibur feel a little bit more like itself again, because we're bringing back some of that British context that we used to have that's been missing. A, li- a little bit of Doctor Who and what has become an X-Files world. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so then we go from Westchester, New York, to upstate New York, which is also not England, where uh, Shinobi Shaw, <laughs> the current Black King of the American Hellfire Club, is bemoaning the London Hellfire Club and his inability to glean intel from them. Uh, so he has decided that he needs an inside man. He needs Brian Braddock. Uh, then a quick cut. Another page, another scene. We finally arrive at Muir Isle, where uh, Kitty and Colossus are watching Nightcrawler bounce a soccer ball on his head and sport a distinctive new look. And here is where we turn to our guest once again. Anna, bald goateed Kurt. Hot or not? Like, it was the 90s. You know, this was a popular (laughs) look. I don't want to hate on it. I know many Kurt fans that actually really like this look. I mean... I like him with his long curly hair. That's going to be my preference always. Mm-hmm. I'm a beard ag- agnostic, as I think I've said in the past. And this is a goatee too, which is, you know, not really a, not really a look of, of now as much as it was a look of then. Although, you know, those of us who could sport one can make it work. But yeah, I don't like... Oh. <laughs> the thing that's a 
surprises me the most about it, to be honest, is that we have the new look of him and we have him introduced in this issue in like casual clothes because we don't actually have a big debut of his new costume in this issue, which is surprising. It's sort of like you see it at the end and in the previous issue, we had a preview of it in the letter column. Yes. Like, it was like, we're going to have this costume next issue. And then not only does it not get the cover, it's like barely debuted in this issue. He doesn't get like a splash page or anything debuting this new costume or explaining how he designed this new costume or who designed it. I mean, these are important questions that should be answered. And instead, we have, you know, info dumps about Mountjoy. But, you know, I'm not the writer. What can I say? <laughs> But yeah, the thing that I found interesting about the new look is this little detail that's just thrown in there of Amanda wanted him, or I guess he got the idea to have this look because Amanda saw a completely different person on a flight with this look. And then Kurt decided to do this look to impress Amanda. And I've been talking about Amanda a lot on the podcast lately, like mm-hmm. on the Gosh Wow podcast, because we just had her debut on that book. So... A lot of people don't like Amanda. They think she's bad for Kurt. I understand why. She can be manipulative. She does not always tell the truth. That is the context of the relationship in this issue as well. But the thing that intrigues me about this detail is that I read Kurt and Amanda as not having a monogamous relationship, as potentially having a polyamorous relationship. Okay. And there's some, like, you know, context to back that up. Going back to those uncanny issues, there are times when... Kurt seems to pursue other people while he's with Amanda and she seems to be mostly okay with this. And they sort of drop in on each other's lives for booty calls and stuff, like without a lot of questions asked. This is a a thing with them. And so this little detail about like, oh, I was turned on by this other guy. So like I did this look of this other guy to add some spice to our relationship. You know, there's something going on there. I'm making it work for myself because otherwise it's just such a strange detail. Either he's trying to make us dislike Amanda by presenting her as someone that doesn't like Kurt and wants him to be someone else, which maybe that's what we're doing. Or, you know, I can try to redeem it because I'm always going to be trying to redeem a female character, especially someone that, you know, my guy likes Amanda. So I'm going to try to like her. That's what friends do. So I'm going to try to make it a little bit more fun, a little bit spicier. That's my that's my head cannoning of this detail. I, yeah, you know, we 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 do what we got to do. Uh, you know, the thing <laughs> I I focused I focused on the wrong and, and and certainly, you know, Amanda has her own sort of subplot when they can get to it uh during this period because she is hiding from Kurt the fact that Rory who lives on the island is not appearing in this issue uh is going to be Ahab. But the thing that I focused on is I think the soccer ball distracted me. So <laughs> for some reason, when he's explaining why he got this haircut, seeing him play soccer, I got it in my head that for some reason, there this was like a hidden reference to this was some popular soccer player of the time that oh. she was trying to get him to look like. I Googled David Beckham 1996. No. David Beckham, 1996, had the other popular male haircut of the time, which was head curtains, you know, where the oh. hair is parted in the middle. I called I call that a Simba haircut. <laughs> we, we will also accept Chris Hardwick from Singled Out. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, that would make sense if it was supposed to be a reference to something. Like, here I am trying to build this whole narrative context for it, and it might just be a dumb reference that we can't identify because we're too dislocated from the distant past of 1996. It's Yeah, I mean, that is entirely possible. I, I, I mean, it's certainly not, you know, a hairstyle anyone in the cast of Friends had. So I, I, I don't know. I'm... I'm... <laughs> I, I'm at a loss, but you know the point is, and I and I think you know you captured this succinctly before. You know whether <laughs> the haircut, the goatee, they're an adjustment. Kurt looks very good in casual clothes here, in the specifically distressed jeans with the tail cut out and the you know button down shirt with sleeves rolled up. It's it, Pacheco's making it work. <laughs> I agree. I mean, mixed feelings about Kurt's new costume, but like. It's one of those ones where when Pacheco draws it, I accept it because he can mm -hmm. somehow make that costume look good. And again, I do love the detail of the casual clothes. And again, this is a ridiculous outfit, but yeah, he looks great. I love any time we get Nightcrawler in casual clothes. I mean, there's a thing where sometimes the other X-Men will be in casual clothes and they'll put Kurt in his costume. And I don't really know why. I don't know whether it's like, some intentional thing where like people think oh well Kurt wouldn't wear regular clothes because he's got this different body or whatever I don't know whether they're like consciously thinking about it or whether you know it's harder to draw him in casual clothes or something because he like looks different or whether it's just sort of I don't know I don't know why it is but it happens a lot and Nightcrawler fans really don't like it because you know, feeling human is really important to Kurt. And, you know, I don't mean human in the, like the context of human and mutant in that world, but human in terms of having humanity, right? It's important for him to feel quote unquote normal in a lot of ways. And so, you know, we see other people like, you know, Cockroom who loved Kurt so much sort of will go to effort to put him in casual clothes and kind of give him a style of his own to express his personality. And he's a character who's a performer too, who, you know, likes dressing up. So it always has made sense to me that he actually would be a character that's very invested in his appearance and very invested in casual clothes. And, you know, regardless of your mileage on this very dated look, I think that actually expresses his character a lot, that he would choose this very <laughs> dated fashion-y outfit and just be like <laughs> out here playing soccer, showing off, looking great. And also, and this just occurred to me, you know, he's, he's dressed a lot more uh, warmly than than kitty and colossus who are both bundled up but also <laughs> but also you know he's a fuzzy elf so there you go <laughs> uh but he he's not the only one sporting a new look here uh megan shows up and Pacheco sees fit to debut her new uniform which you know <laughs> I, I i feel like there are two things staring me right in the face on this one but mm -hmm. uh uh Anna, do you have any thoughts there? <laughs> just kick that one to me. I mean, just like we had the soccer ball two pages ago and I'm like, oh, Megan has two soccer balls on her chest. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. They're, just, they're, they're very round. They're very, very round. And with like the shading that really just makes them look like two balls on her chest. Like, I love boobs and comics. I love sexy comics. Who doesn't? Boobs are great. You know, this is not an anti-boob podcast, I am sure. But at the same time, sometimes the exaggeration can be counterproductive depending on what we're trying to focus on in a particular moment. The angle, the roundness, the stuck on her chestness of these is a little bit distracting to me. I don't know that it necessarily fits her character as I understand it. It's a very kind of 
armored costume in a lot of ways, which they're going in a little bit of a different direction with the character at this point in time. So I think it's defensible. You know, I think it's a nice costume other than like the semi-questionable sexualization of this particular image. But she does really look like Link also. And that kind of was distracting to me. She's like, you know, sexy Link with boobs. It just feels like a fan art that I've seen before. You know, it was yeah. that distracted me a little bit too. Yes, especially because like her ears are so pointy there mm-hmm. that there's a. I don't know if horny elf quest is the right word because elf, <laughs> well, elf yeah, quest might already, already be. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you know, in that vein, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I the camera angle is definitely one of the most distracting things about it. Yeah, and it's just it's odd because it's not really a sexy pose. It's just like it just feels a little bit uncanny because of the nature of the exaggeration and the because I mean here's one of the things. If you're gonna do like sexy exaggeration, you gotta like either do it or not do it. And you know, the issue that I'll often have with certain nineties artists is that they'll go halfway. Like they'll be like, Okay, I gotta make this sexy, but I don't really know how to do that. So I'm just gonna make like certain body parts huge and certain other body parts not huge, and then end up with some kind of like dislocated uncanny image where like the legs are 10 feet long and the boobs are bigger than her head and like one arm's longer than the other and like spines can move like that right that's not really what we have here i mean this is a much more naturalistic style than you know a liefeld but at the same time just again it's like part of the image is like hypersexualized, and then like the pose is actually not so i just i don't know what he's going for here i feel like he's just throwing sexualization on this image without a lot of forethought just in a kind of a tropey way so like that's when i sometimes find sexualization boring you know when you're mm-hmm. just doing it to do it and there's not a lot of purpose to it you know if it was really important in this scene for her to be like i want to feel really sexy right here that's part of what i'm doing that's part of my character journey then i'd be like sure that makes sense you know like you're emma frost and you're stepping out in your new outfit and sexuality is part of your superpower and you're doing that that makes sense here it doesn't feel thoughtful and you know that's good and bad. I'm not like mm-hmm. up in arms going to cancel this comic over it, but it definitely was a little distracting for me is what I'll say. Yeah. I, I, all right. I figured it out with the angle. It looks like she's looking <laughs> down at them. Mm, and, and because it's the first time she's yeah. come, you know, come out in her new outfit, she's like, <laughs> it's like, notice anything different? <laughs> but like, like not- she's showing off to like Kurt and Kitty and Peter. I mean, yeah, I mean, two of those men she will kind of have a thing for. So, I mean, maybe, <laughs> but still. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll move on from that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but your, your some, guy is on the next page. His pants are on this page. And then we finally get your guy. Uh, yes, my guy's my my guy's pants are oh, not are, the next page. I'm sorry. I I thought I thought we were going there, but we're jumping back to the Hellfire Club. Uh, yeah, but no. First, we 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 get another character apart. Speak, you know, speaking of people we haven't seen in months, uh, Lockheed has finally come out of hiding. Uh, of course, I'm only realizing this reading this issue, but I genuinely feel like Ellis forgot about Lockheed in the midst of his many <laughs> characters and plots and his gigantic team cast. Uh, and Pacheco, uh, again, must have just been like, can I draw the dragon? Oh. Uh, yeah. 
But uh, anyway, the the thing here is Lockheed hates Pete and steals his clothes and his cigarettes and talks to him. Uh, so off-putting. Yeah. Although like, I I do remember finding it hilarious at the time <laughs> in the <laughs> my original readings. Well, I was just like sad about the missed opportunity of like Pete should be naked here because Lockheed stole his clothes and he should be here in the tidy whities climbing up this tower and that's a real missed opportunity for comedy. I want to see Pete in some ratty underwear with a cigarette dangling from dangling from his lip climbing up the side of this cliff. That's what I wanted to see and I was denied that and I feel disappointed by that. And and the thing is that wouldn't be the first time that we would have seen Pete drawn that way because Larry Stroman did draw Pete in his boxer smoking a cigarette in like issue 89 or 88, I think. Yeah, no, first part of Dream Mail. So it would have been uh, 88. But uh, yeah, no, there's there's precedent there. But it also, there is a running gag by this point about the fact that Pete's cheap suits keep getting destroyed and uh. he keeps getting drawn in the same one like they were made of <laughs> unstable molecules and not just purchased from whatever london's version of the men's warehouse is so he's literally climbing the tower in another cheap suit while lockheed has what looks like piles and piles uh <laughs> stolen from pete's homer simpson closet wrapped around an antenna <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of confused about this one because it's drawn, the panel where Lockheed talks is drawn like Pete's behind him, but then Lockheed's facing forwards. That panel actually confused me and I found myself staring at it a lot. I feel like the dialogue bubbles aren't where they're supposed to be or something. Anyway, I just, I still feel like the scene should have been comedy gold and it, it didn't quite hit the mark. Although I did like the introduction of like Lockheed with the pants because like, oh, where are we going here? What's your take on like Lockheed hating Pete? I mean, this is the introduction of that as a plot. Like, does this do anything for you? I, reading it now, it, it kind of shocks me that with all the players, which are born out of of concepts that came along with the introduction of Pete Black Air, the London Hellfire Club, that he's sort of been relegated to this, you know, one burst of, of comic relief while there's all this other stuff going on. Uh, at the same time, you know, when I was reading these comics originally, I thought it was hysterical. Uh, <laughs> you know, Matt and I used to talk about these scenes like, constantly and so you know i i do like the back and forth of of lockheed hating kitty's current boyfriend um you know probably because lockheed knows damn well <laughs> that uh, kitty can do better uh well and yet lockheed ships kitty and peter that's a well-known fact about lockheed always trying to get those two back together hardcore shipper of kitty and, and peter who is you know honestly out of the two of them i'm i'm facing the question of which one i prefer if kitty had to choose one of them oh boy that is a devil's choice <laughs> yeah i i, I mean if we're if we're gonna talk about the false binary of wisdom and colossus, the yeah, answer is Ilyana. Yes, I know it is a false binary. But I was like, if I was put, you know, if I really had, to, you know, she has more fun with Pete Wisdom. Like I hate to say it, but you know, she does. You know, they have good banter. They do. They do. Oof. 
Yeah, I hadn't thought of posing that question to myself because I hadn't got to this era yet. But like, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited to talk about their miniseries together. We're going to do a special on that on the pod. And of course, we're, we'll have you on to talk about Pete as well. Oh, hooray. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah, it's, it is it is funny uh, also that they're reintroducing Lockheed in this issue because in the sword strokes call, in the three pages of sword strokes, there are four <laughs> letters of people asking where Lockheed went. Like apparently that too. <laughs> everybody remembered at the same time. <laughs> like there's one letter that's like Lockheed is my favorite character in all of comics. How dare you not have him in the comic? And I was like, slow your roll. I mean, your favorite <laughs> character in all of, I mean, I love the guy, but like, well, dragon guy, whatever he is, but like, oof, that's, that's a statement. That's a statement. Your favorite character of all the characters. I'm not sure. But, you know, I again, respect. I respect everybody's favorites, even mm -hmm. if your favorite is a dragon who might or might not be sentient and might, in fact, be a pet or is sometimes not a pet and sometimes in love with Kitty and sometimes not and is confusing and sometimes can talk like in this issue and then other times absolutely can't. And we just have to accept that. And and only in this arc, basically. <laughs> mm hmm. <laughs> Because that was another thing. I'm like, did they ever pick up Lockheed talking again? And I don't think they did. Or if they did, like, not that much. So It raises questions. And we've, again, we have a podcast where we talk about every issue of Excalibur for like an hour and a bit. So we've had to talk about this lots about the nature of Lockheed's sentience. And mm -hmm. uh hate to take it to this place. But there is like a bit of a creepy thing with him. Like depending on how sentient he is, depending on how human-like he is, hangs out in Kitty's bedroom and watches her get dressed and undressed and accepts belly rubs while lying in her lap. And there's just a lot going on there. And I think when we make him talk, that brings those questions to the forefront more than I would like. You know, as long as there's sort of a, a species difference there that sort of shuts some of that down, I'm a little bit more comfortable than Lockheed being a little bit more human. Just my two cents on that one. You know, I do voice work for my dog sometimes. And now I'm starting <laughs> to view that in a different way. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that is not the same thing at all. <laughs> this is a magical dragon cre creature with unusual properties. It's fine. Ah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, next we cut to the London Hellfire Club. When we are meeting for the first time, mostly kind of. Uh, we've got a red king and queen and a black king and queen and their scribe who dresses all in white. Uh, straight away, they make it clear that they're involved with black air and whatever stuff they were doing with aliens at the Dream Nails base, which makes sense because in issue 90, it, the, it's shown that the Hellfire Club gifted black air a brood sample. Uh, Otherwise, we don't really know anything about who they are or what they do. Uh, although, in thinking about it, I suppose if we really examined it, you know, we never got that deep into the U.S. Hellfire Club's evil corporate business dealing, dealings, maybe outside of Frost and Shaw. Uh, we just knew they were evil and did business. Uh, and also, this Black King looks like the like somebody palette swapped Guy Gardner, basically. It really does. And gave him a cool-ass cigarette holder, I think. Possibly? Let me go back to that page. He's not the only one, because Shinobi's smoking like a Virginia Slim a few pages before. 
He's come a long way, baby. Remember when people other than Pete Wisdom smoked in comics, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is a golden era for for smoking in comics. Uh, Yeah, no, he's got a cigarette holder. And he's talking to a dude with a big ass sword. (laughs) I respect it. I respect it. Um. Another question that just occurred to me: If the members of the of the American Hellfire Club uh, affect fake, you know, British, put on British accents, even though they're not British, <laughs> do the London Hellfire Club all speak with fake American accents? This is a good question. <laughs> I mean, because the funny thing is, I can't picture them for some reason. I cannot picture them speaking to each other with British accents. You, that just makes me like. Do you hear voices when you're reading comics? And I was like, oh, that's like one of those questions about how we read comics. You know, like, do we see them in motion? Do we see them as still images? Do we hear voices in our minds? Do we try to imagine the voices? These are these are existential questions that you've thrown me into now, Dan, by asking that. I mean, I will say that I I, I do, uh, you know, largely a lot of them influenced by you know, the nineties X-Men cartoon. And then sometimes I'm just like, well, you know what? Sebastian Shaw sounds like Matt Berry. And then I'm not brooking any argument Ooh. on this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would enjoy that. I would enjoy that. That would make me enjoy him significantly more than I generally do. Yeah. It's the right level of cartoon pompousness that uh, you need for that character to be palatable. <laughs> uh, but uh, it will be revealed that one of these people is Mount Joy and one of them is Margali Zardos, Kurt's adoptive mother. Uh, we're just mm. not meant to know who is who just yet. Uh, and I don't think we actually learn about the rest of them. Although I think one of them ends up being, uh, is supposed to be the char- the character who was Damask in the quote-unquote Excalibur RE book from Age of Apocalypse. But again, it's just, it's just too, it's, it's too much stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of introductions here and a lot of people to keep track of. Uh, but then we cut to some inter-X book continuity as Gene and Scott talk to uh, Kurt, Kitty, and Colossus. Gene mentions Kitty that Psylocke is still in a coma after having been attacked by Sabretooth uh, because that's where Uncanny was at the time. Um, that And of course, that means the Crimson Dawn is coming. And I feel sorry for both of us because we're going to have to cover that in our respective shows. Um, Can I ask you a question about this Jean panel where like they do sure. that kind of cool thing where she's got like her hand in the foreground and that is blurred in the background? Because I feel like you'll know more about this than I do. Like the ability to do an effect like that. Yes. Is that because we're switching to digital like art production or like where are some of these techniques coming from? This that that is definitely so coming out of Age of Apocalypse in 95, basically that's where you get digital coloring start to take off and also uh comic crafts becoming the predominant letterer on a lot of these books. And so they're they've got all these new toys and they're playing with them. And that's when you really start to see a lot of those sort of blurred background effects and and also just I mean I'm I'm conflating coloring and lettering which is ridiculous but it's it's a period of experimentation for both and it it tends to get i would say overused although i will say in this particular panel it does look cool it does look cool i mean it's a bit off-putting because the only time in the comic we get an effect like this used but still it's a cool panel i enjoyed it there's actually in um god i want to say it's 87 
it's it's when they're in Genosha. There's a panel where Kitty is looking out a window, and it there's a similar effect to make it clear that you know she's on the other side of a window and it's not perfectly transparent. So, yeah, interesting, interesting times regarding that stuff. Um, I like I like Scott and Jean here too. They're just like looking like '90s couple goals and like their oversized <laughs> clothes with their hair looking great, and even him with the huge, huge, like bright fuchsia pink sunglasses. I'm like, oh, I wanna I wanna be them. I mean, that's goals. They look great. <laughs> Everybody looks so cozy in this issue. And they really do. You know, they are they are sort of, but they're all guilty of breaking that sort of time honored X Men tradition. They've actually picked up the phone and called each other to relay information. I know, I know. I actually loved that, Dan, because it's been so frustrating. And like, they're just talking to each other like humans and like addressing their emotional states. I actually really appreciated that. It's like, oh, you haven't seen, you know, Peter since all that stuff went up. Come on, Peter, you come on camera, like. <laughs> have a little convo with them and i was like that was a nice touch i actually really appreciated it like it's great miscommunication is great for drama the x-men are all emotional disasters we get it but sometimes they need to just demonstrate basic competency both practically and emotionally i appreciated that inferno is one of the greatest X-Men stories <laughs> of all time. It is also predicated on every single X-Men team not talking to any other X-Men mm -hmm, team, mm -hmm. yet somehow all having <laughs> similar adventures in the same place, including Excalibur. Mm -hmm. No phones, like no TV. They know to go there because of like a psychic signal from like baby Nate reaching out to Rachel and you're like surely there's an easier way to let people know what's going on but I mean who knows yeah yeah no exactly <laughs> but uh yeah so Scott and Jean are basically like uh you guys need to come pick up your Alistair Stewart <laughs> uh and, and then in probably the busiest phone day Muir Island has ever had Shinobi Shaw calls immediately after asking if Brian can come out to play uh, nobility bondage games. <laughs> it didn't occur to me how many pages of phone calls there are. <laughs> I mean, maybe this is like, this is Pacheco's skill, like that he was able to make this look dynamic. I mean, we were, we were talking about that on my, I have this Twitter account, mm -hmm. Sequential Scholars with Andrew DeMann. And, you know, we were talking about Michael Gatos's work with Conversations and Alias the other day on that on that uh, feed and you know talking about Wally Woods like 22 panels that always work yeah and you know you see a lot of that here right you know the low camera angle like looking up at like Kurt's dynamically like foreshortened hand while he's like asking Alistair a question you know just to keep things interesting he's doing some good work with the conversations throughout here it didn't strike me as static despite the fact that you just pointed out they're having like three pages of phone conversations <laughs> It's it's Bendis it's Bendis levels of dialogue, but it doesn't mm -hmm. feel that way, and that's that's the important thing. Um, so now we cut again, and we're we're still in England, but we've got this weird exchange between Scratch, a Black Air agent we've never met yet, uh, and Sebastian Shaw, Shinobi's dad, who is not currently with the Hellfire Club, and has kind of at this point he's he kind of just pops up randomly in in different x books like oh i'm up to something but uh 
Shaw's got these bodyguards with him who kind of look like the old Hellfire Club goons if they got like a 90s makeover. <laughs> like if if Macon Cole and Reese from the Reavers uh, got their old jobs back from before Wolverine killed them, uh, except Scratch kills them. Uh, and Shaw just kind of shrugs it off and heads to his next destination, which apparently isn't an issue of X-Man. Uh, condolences, Sebastian. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, finally, after you know some more exposition, we get we get to the good part, as Michael Bolton says. Uh, Pete Wisdom is shown climbing uh, Muir Island's antenna array to get his clothes back from Lockheed, uh, who has amassed a nest of them atop the antenna, and he declares in no uncertain terms, "I ate you. Back off, or I kill the clothes." Again, I don't know what voice you're supposed to read him in, but that's what I'm going with. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I, I I did, you know, I haven't read a Pete comic for a while, so I did enjoy the little caption box that was like, Pete Wisdom does not like climbing. It lets fresh air into his lungs. So I was like, that was pretty funny. It's a very Warren Ellis line. Mm-hmm, the thing mm-hmm. is, Pete actually hasn't had a cigarette in a couple issues, not since he got beat up by Colossus. Mm, that's right. He, I mean, he could, he could very well be smoking off panel, but it looks like he's been taking doctor's orders. Mm-hmm. Even if that doctor is Moira. and like i appreciated too that like even doug gets like the floppy emo hair here it's like pacheco's just making everybody look cozy even even lost robot boys yes floppy emo techno hair for Mm -hmm. for (laughs) half a page of him giving this sort of odd soliloquy where he just says today i'm going to choose chaos yeah, I mean, it's really weird. <laughs> Which is a very emo speech. Yeah. <laughs> Chaos is the way. <laughs> I kind of love it. <laughs> I'm like, well, I want to see what's going to happen there. I mean, I'm intrigued. I, I, I hope he, like, dyes his hair black and just starts sassing mm-hmm. off to people in that sort of mm-hmm. tinny robot voice I assume he has. <laughs> this is definitely his Spider-Man 3 moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're heading in that now direction. I'm picturing him doing the dance in the doorway. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that movie since I saw it in the theater, and yet clearly it had an effect on me. <laughs> it, it, it affected us all. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! So the issue ends with uh, the moonlight flip. Brian's medical craft getting shot down by black helicopters over British airspace. Uh, which is a callback to the last time Excalibur's plane was shot down in 86 when Black Air was first introduced, 10 issues prior. Uh, as Kurt presu- uh, says, oh no, not again. Uh, and, Kurt, uh, has a, Kurt has a kind of running thing of wrecking Brian's planes. It's been going on for a while. I mean, he wrecked, was it the first time that he wrecked one in Excalibur 31? Or I'm even like wondering if there was a previous one. But yeah, anyway, it's been a running gag for him. And it's pretty funny. I'm not going to lie. Running gags of Ex- in Excalibur of things getting wrecked, i.e. planes, Brian's clothes, Pete's suits are always funny. The entire lighthouse, you know, the bathroom. That was important at one point. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about the art on this page, too, and like these kind of like candy lasers that Pacheco draws and just again I've been stuck in kind of the a few years earlier 90s style lately and Mm -hmm. it's just so clean you know like 
even weapons fire looks tasty you know it's not just like filling the page with mess like we would have seen like with certain other artists in the earlier 90s like it's so sanitized and like pretty compared to compared to what we might have had from from somebody else just a few years earlier I, I like the way you're describing them. It, 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 they they do. They they're, they're like these like neat little red bursts, as opposed to like you know Star Wars pew pew lasers. Yeah, because like I feel like we would have filled the page with texture and really made the point that everything is exploding constantly all the time. Like oh, we covered X Men Unlimited number four recently on the podcast, mm-hmm. and that just had some of the most '90s art ever. It was like. It's an oversized issue anyway, and I've read that issue like five times and just exhausted by the end of it. The amount of text boxes and like overlapping panels and no white space. There are so many explosions and so much yelling that you cannot tell what's going on from moment to moment. And there's just such a striking difference between what we had there and something like the pacing and space and like <laughs> like quiet that we sometimes have here. Because, you know, this is a moment where they're in a battle but it's not a climactic battle. So let's tone it down a little bit. Like mm-hmm. let's modulate so that when we do have the big explosion, we recognize that it is a big explosion and not just more explosions. And, you know, I appreciate that craft. Uh, one thing that was pointed out to me today by our uh, frequent question asker, Asimov Fangirl, was the uh, branding, the Black Air branding. So they have these like sort of they basically look like the sun uh, logos. Uh, Scratch has one tattooed on its forehead, but the helicopters uh, of this uh, secret British intelligence organization all have these giant yellow suns on them. And, and, and so, you know, for a secretish organization, Black Air's branding <laughs> is kind of extreme. Well, it's the 90s, but it's kind of extreme, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of, like when the CIA helicopters come, they don't say CIA in big ass letters. Yeah. I, I'm just hesitant to go to like a dark place with like some sort of like, well, we often do this thing where it's like sort of like fascist Nazi inspiration with symbols and stuff. And I'm just like, you know, sometimes that's the inspiration for like a lot of villain stuff. So it might be that. But like also I think it's just comics that it's the 90s and we got to put cool logos on shit so we can tell who people are. That's true. Those those toy biz uh, those toy biz figures don't sell themselves. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a cool logo. I mean, I'm not mad at it. Mm-hmm. So there there were there were some some sort of typos and dialogue errors in this issue that I noticed. So uh, Nightcrawler, when they're talking to Scott and Jean, Nightcrawler says he's going to pick up Alistair. But then the next panel, Kitty says she's going to go borrow the Midnight Runner from Brian and tells Kurt to hold the fort. But Kurt is the one walking off Panable presumably to take the plane while Kitty takes the next call from Shinobi Shaw. And then instead of taking the Midnight Runner, Kurt flies off in the Moonlight Flit, which is actually the smaller medical craft that Brian designed, which was intentional because it doesn't have any artillery, and that's why it wasn't able to fire back at the Black Air Copters. Uh, And then also during the uh, antenna sequence... There's a caption box that refers to Muir Islands, plural. Oh. Yeah. With, I'm uh, glad that you pointed out that stuff about the planes and stuff, because really, I like 
I was having trouble following part of that and I blamed it on myself and thought I'm just not reading carefully enough, but it's good to know that maybe it wasn't just me. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a, just a couple things that don't, don't track right, but that's all right. Uh, additional, you know, any sort of additional or, or, you know, other thoughts before we move on to the uh, superlative part of the, of uh, the proceedings? No, you know, I'm just, I'm feeling happy to be, to have kind of landed in this era of Excalibur and sort of coming back to these characters that I remember. I mean, to me, Excalibur is like split into two eras. You know, it's the Claremont Davis era, both with Claremont and Davis Mm -hmm. together, and then Davis on his own. And then this is the other era that I think about. And it's like Pacheco and Jones and, um, and Wend Ellis and, you know... (laughs) I don't want to talk about any of the real life Ellis stuff. We're going to do that on my podcast at some point. Not talking about that right now. Um, But yeah, he really like brings an identity back to this book. And I mean, uh, that team of people really brings an identity back to this book. And it's not the same book that it was before, but it's a book that I really like a lot. And, you know, it'll never sort of replace those earlier issues in my heart, but it's still a series that I have a lot of nostalgia for. And I'm looking forward to reading the rest of this and talking about it once we get to it on our own show. I'm 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 glad you mentioned Casey Jones in that too, because I, I definitely don't think I had an appreciation for him the first, you know, reading the first time around, but in doing this reread, he provides a an appreciated consistency for the three issues that he's there. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, so often, you know, when it's not the same artist handling a book, we will have, you know, huge variations in style. And that can work if it's a deliberate thing and you kind of work with that. But you want to be maintaining sort of a tonal consistency, ideally, and getting back to that a little bit with Excalibur after such a long period of just throwing different people at the book. Yeah, definitely appreciated. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Now we'll kind of run through the superlatives. Uh, how many pages does wisdom appear in? Half a page and all time low. I'm <laughs> no. very sad. <laughs> um, best words of wisdom. To Lockheed, he says, I don't care whose pet you are. I'm going to skin you. <laughs> I didn't know you had a Pete voice. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, you know, you do this long enough. <laughs> And then uh, best insult also, Pete, to Lockheed, you bloody flying rat. (laughs) Does he use his hot? Yep, go ahead. And he wonders why he doesn't like him. (laughs) Uh, Does he use his hot knives in this issue? No, but you know he's thinking about it. (laughs) Does he smoke? Nope, too busy chasing the dragon, as it were. Uh, (laughs) Good one. Uh, fashion watch pete is wearing his his typical suit but he's also lost a number of the other ones he had to lockheed and nate gray the previous issue and colossus a couple issues before that uh pete's suits getting singed and destroyed is now a proud tradition uh at the same time kurt and megan steal the fashion spotlight with their new pacheco drawn looks Uh, now we'll get into letters about pete uh and it's worth mentioning a lot of the letters in the three pages of letters that we have here are generally just praising the uh, the Ellis run in general. But uh, Rockwell N. Green of Overland Park, Kansas, writes as a firm believer in the validity and inevitability of a Colossus Kitty Pride union, LOL. I was glad to see that wisdom still lives. You folks did a very good thing in keeping him alive. I agree. Catherine D. Kobishuk of Mastic Beach, New York, writes, Pete Wisdom and Lucky would make great friends too. 
Oh, well. Oh, the disappointment. <laughs> if, if only. <laughs> Dowd Omer of Covington, Kentucky, uh, writing about Excalibur's 92. Colossus went nuts. I did not realize the baggage he carried with him, but afterward I could understand why he did go a bit crazy. I guess the best part of the situation is that wisdom is going to live. So that that's that's two people damning Pete with faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> at least he's alive. <laughs> yes, at least he is not dead. Uh, meanwhile, in a few of the other X books that came out that month, uh, and on Candy three thirty one, Iceman confronts the White Queen about that time she took his body for a joyride. Uh, in Wolverine one hundred, Tyler Dayspring tries to jam some adamantium back into Logan. It doesn't take. Also, it has a hologram cover. In X-Men 51, Sinister injects a mutating virus onto a subway car, and Bishop, Gambit, and Beast try to punch the problem. Actually, this was probably McCoy at that point. Either way. Uh, and for our last two, we get X-related amalgam comics from those times Marvel and DC touched bits. So we get Magneto and the Magnetic Men, which messes up Metal Men, and X-Patrol, which mashed up uh, X-Men with Doom Patrol. Uh, and then ads, we got Black Sheep, the Farley and Spade movie, making its second appearance. Street Fighter II, the animated movie on VHS. Mile High Comics. Marvel Interactive CD-ROM comic books. I, I never had those. Had you ever had one of those? I do not. I think the closest thing I had... Do you remember how they were releasing like entire runs of comics on dvd and like high-res pdfs like i don't know when this was like in like 2005 maybe anyway i have the iron man one and so it's like hmm. 500 issues of iron man and like these high-res pdfs including all of the ads which hmm. is pretty cool i think a lot of people got them and then sort of redistributed them on on pirate sites sure it's <laughs> probably what happened um and it was the 2000s what else were you gonna do with them Exactly. And they are kind of inconvenient to read, but it's kind of a cool historical document that I hang on to because it's kind of cool having all these high-res PDFs with all these Iron Man comics. I don't have anything really to do with them. It's easier to read them on Unlimited, but but still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else we have. We have the Generation X TV movie, a house ad for the Hulk, Street Fighter Alpha, Dave's Comics, The Coopert School, Flair NBA Basketball Card Series 2, and finally, uh, Spider-Man Chef Boyardee Pasta. <laughs> oh, I have eaten that before. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely have eaten that before. <laughs> Tastes just like eating webs. <laughs> <laughs> the shapes are like, because they still make that, I think. And the, the shapes are, you cannot, the web you can identify. And then there's like one that's Spider-Man's head. And I'm like, right, Spider-Man's head represented in pasta. This totally works, right? And like maybe a green goblin one. I don't know. It's not a good design. <laughs> I I would definitely sigh eye anything that comes out green or uh, green shaped out of a Chef Boyardee <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, Anna, this has been fantastic. Uh, final final question as we wrap up. How can people follow you online and support the things that you are doing? Yeah, you can find me usually at ComicsXF doing something or other. I'm currently reviewing the Sabretooth and the Exile series with Jude Jones. That's primarily what I'm contributing these days. You can also find me on Twitter, presuming Twitter you know, still exists by the time this episode comes out. I feel like I'm saying that all the time lately. Uh, but yes, you can find me on Twitter at my very boring handle that is just my name, Papard underscore Anna. 
often tweeting about Nightcrawler, sometimes lately tweeting about the fabulous television show that is Lucifer. I've been very into that lately. Mm -hmm. And you can also find me at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where we do threads about comics and what makes them great. Me and Andrew DeMann of Claremont Run uh, fame are the empresarios of that. At the time of recording, we are doing a series of threads about Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos's classic series, Alias. And we are going to be doing a series spotlighting Indigenous comics after that. So you can look out for mm -hmm. that. Go follow us. That is fantastic. Uh, and meanwhile, listeners, next month, more of this. The London Hellfire Club story goes on for a while. So strap in. And until next time, listeners, Sodoff Torag. Torag.